of the month. We cannot leave this book without going over this truth one more time. The word of the Lord came to Haggai. These are God's words spoken through Haggai's voice. This is just like our scriptures. God's word spoken through the personality and the language of people. What God wants to be said through Haggai is said. Don't let anyone ever tell you. That God's thoughts are so big and so complicated that he cannot communicate with his people. That is, to borrow a term from our British friends, absolute rubbish. It is garbage. It is not true. God can do whatever he wants to do. And he can speak to his people through fallen and broken human languages. He has a word for his people. Megan and I were reminded, we went to a a small little family conference this week with the uh, Baptist Convention of New Mexico, and, and one of the speakers was Don Whitney. And he said, if you are ever struggling and want to hear the voice of God audibly, open up your Bible and read it out loud. That is God's voice audibly to you, right? It may not be the voice of God, it may be your voice, but it's his words. So do not lose faith in the veracity of the life that is given through the scriptures. The second thing that we notice from this verse is that this this sermon came on the 24th day of the same month that we studied last week. And so this tells us that Haggai had two sermons to give on the same day. Think about that, right? Two sermons were given to them from the mouth of God. This is like a two-for-one deal. This is as if we finish this sermon and we sing the final song, we take the Lord's Supper, and then I stand up and say, wait a minute, the Lord has one more thing to say. Right? This is a good thing that has happened. So our first point, if you're taking notes, is that God's word is always good for his people. God's word is always good for his people. And if you think back to some of the things that Haggai has said, they have not been gentle and warm and cuddly. Some of these things have been hard things. But we know Just like the people of God have always known that God is not just worried about you right now. He is worried about you 10,000 years from now. He wants your heart and your soul and your mind captured by his glory. He wants to prepare you to spend eternity with him. And so to do that, sometimes God's word has to be hard. He has to say hard things to his people. I've told you all that one of my favorite television shows is The Office. And in one of the early seasons, one of the first episodes, um, there is bad news that comes on this paper company based in Scranton, Pennsylvania, that there, there may be some downsizing. There may need to be some people let go and maybe even branches closed. And the boss of this paper company, Michael Scott, doesn't want to tell his people that 
they may be downsized. And he puts out this quote that's pretty ridiculous. He says he's not going to tell his employees that there may be downsizing because you don't tell a patient he has cancer. Right? Like, how ridiculous is that? Of course, a doctor would tell a patient they have cancer. A good doctor gives hard words sometimes. A good boss gives hard words sometimes. A good God gives hard words sometimes. But they are good, they are hard words that lead to the good of the people. And so we look at the Bible and we come to realize that in Jesus, we have the best words of all. In the gospel of Jesus, the fact that we are broken sinners in rebellion against God, but God so loved the world that he sent his son to live the perfectly obedient life that you and I could not live. He died on the cross taking our penalty and our shame upon himself. And three days later, he comes back to life, defeating death, defeating hell, and promising to return to be king of those who trust in him. That is a good word. That is the best word. Christianity is not a religion of do, 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 and hope God will accept you. Christianity is a religion of look at what God has done. Look at who God is. Look at the great love that he has for us. And so if you are an unbeliever today, if you are someone who is sitting on the fence, I want to encourage you that the gospel and, and the scriptures are only a good word if you repent and believe. Because the Bible is clear. Those who die apart from Christ are under judgment they are broken, sinful rebels who God is going to judge. You need to let the truth of that judgment hover over your heart. You need to let that truth be in the forefront of your mind. You must Know that God is good and gracious and merciful, but he's also holy and just, and he will not let sin go unpunished. You must repent and believe. Christian, we must trust God's word. We must learn to rejoice in his word, and we must learn to share his word. You must look at the Bible as how Paul describes it to Timothy in 2 Timothy, that, it is, that, that the Holy Scriptures are there to make us wise in salvation. The Bible is there to make you wise, to help you think about things that will honor God. But it's not just, the wisdom is not the end of Scripture. Salvation is the end of Scripture. We must see from Genesis to Revelation the story that sits underneath the Scriptures of a good and holy God, a broken and rebellious people, and the grace and mercy of the cross to win them back. As a church, we must trust the scriptures together. We must love the scriptures. We must ground everything we do in the scriptures. Right? Everything must be centered on the gospel and on the Bible. If we do things that have nothing to do with the Bible, 
then we have become a rotary club. And we must let our conversations, our fellowship be centered, not around the football teams, not around the rain, right? Like I know that that's a a big topic of our conversation lately, but our conversations must be based around what God is doing in his word through his people. How is the Bible changing you? How is it impacting you? And if it's not changing you and it's not impacting you, then make sure that you're around people who will encourage you in that. Find one or two folks in this building, and if you can't, then you come to me and I will help you find them. But find some folks who will breathe life into you, who will quote scripture to you, who will encourage you with the Bible. And friends, in the public square, we must seek to be heralds. We must carry the good news of Jesus with us and give it to everyone who will hear. So we go from verse 20 to verses 21 through 22. And if you're concerned, man, he got a lot out of just one small half sentence. Don't worry, we're going to pick up steam here. Uh, But verse 21 God tells Haggai this, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Do not forget who Zerubbabel is. He is the governor of Judah, right? We're told that. But he is in the line of King David. He is the great-grandson of David and the great-grandpa of Jesus. His name, let's not forget, means seed of Babylon. This is to remind the people of God that someone in the line of David, because of their rebellion against God, was born not in Jerusalem, but in Babylon. But it's also a sign of God's coming victory. God is going to be victorious against his enemies. The kingdoms that stand against him have fallen and they will continue to fall until Jesus returns. In fact, there's irony in the fact that Zerubbabel's name is seed of Babylon because he doesn't leave Babylon to come back to Jerusalem. He leaves Persia. You know why? Because the Persians went to Babylon and destroyed them. Already, the people of Babylon had felt the judgment of God through the people of Persia. This is why we don't sit around and read articles in the New York Times about how great Babylon is. But if you notice, we also don't read in the New York Times about how great Persia is. Nor Rome. Nor Greece. At one point in the history of the world, the Mongolians were the scariest people. Genghis Khan was a name to shudder at. And now one of my favorite, one of my family's favorite restaurants in Las Cruces is a place called Genghis Grill, which is a Mongolian grill named, I guess in a funny way, off of one of the scariest men in all of history. Think about that. 
God says that he will shake the heavens and the earth. We saw this word shake two weeks ago. It has the idea of being jolted violently. And when any time the heavens and the earth are shaken or um, quaked or, or, or whatever the prophetic imagery is used, this is talking about the day of the Lord. This is talking about Jesus' return. This is talking about God's final victory over all of sin and his restoration of his kingdom to completeness. And so God runs in, or he jumps into, through Haggai, these ideas of, of overthrowing thrones and destroying the strength of kingdoms and nations and overthrowing chariots and riders. And this reminds us that in the end, there's only one kingdom that matters. Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Rome, Greece, Mongolia. Think of some of the ones in the last 1,500 years, right? Spain used to be the most powerful nation in the world. It's why almost a third of the world speaks Spanish. Nobody's afraid of Spain anymore. Great Britain, right? There used to be the saying that the sun never sets on the British land. Well, 1776, a group of uh, folks decided to fight against that. And ever since then, the world has changed. Nobody is afraid of Great Britain. I remember as a kid, right, being a child of the 80s, going through exercises in case a missile was dropped on us by the United Soviet Socialist Republic, which no longer exists. Friends, this is just as true for our nation as well. There will come a time when no one in the world will fear the United States of America. And that's okay. There will come a time when Nobody is, is fearing the growth of China. Because there is only one kingdom that in the end matters, and that is God's kingdom. The question is not, who are you a citizen of today? The question is, who will you be a citizen of for eternity? And we are told that the horse and the rider shall go down. This is for every person that Haggai is preaching to, to remember what happened to the mighty chariots and the mighty army of Egypt when they followed Moses and the children of God into the Red Sea. And when God delivered his people, the waters fell back down, and those amazing chariots and that vast army was finished. And then Haggai also says, that each person will die by the sword of his brother. This reminds us and the people of Israel of Joshua and Judges and how many times God's people entered into a battle with more people than they could handle and God brought confusion and the other army, the opposing army, killed themselves and Israel walked in to the promised land. You see, God gives us the past to look forward to the future. And we see the movement of God with his people and we trust that he will always be faithful because he always has and he promises to always be. Our second point is in the end, only one 
kingdom matters. In the end, only one kingdom matters. Do you know the story of Hiro'o Onada? Hiro'o Onada was a Japanese spy that was dropped on to the islands of the Philippines in 1944. Now, Japan surrendered to the United States on August 15th of 1945. But Mr. Onada did not call it quits and leave the Philippines until 1974. He stayed in the jungles of the Philippines, living in caves, living off the produce of the land, and every once in a while stealing a goat or a cow from a, from, from a farmer, still working for the nation of Japan to try to win the Second World War, even though, you know, at, at the end of his time there, it had been over for 29 years. He was finally found, and he would not surrender to the Filipinos until Japan flew down two of his commanding officers and they told him, hey, the war's over. It's been over for 29 years. It's okay. You can come home now. I think for many of us, we look at the future being concerned about what the United States is going to be. And friends, I am not calling you to be unactive politically. But I am telling you that whether America stands or falls, God and his kingdom are still existing. God and his kingdom are what we are to be most about. We see this in the ministry of Jesus. Right? He comes and what's the first thing he announces? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came to usher in the kingdom, to preach about it, to teach about it. The Sermon on the Mount that we just walked through reminds us that our first allegiance is not to the United States, but to the kingdom of Christ. And we live by the virtues of the Sermon on the Mount because we have a new king. But we tend to place other kingdoms before his. And I'm not just talking about the United States. I'm not talking about the New Mexico government or local government. We like to build our own little kingdoms and place them above God's. Whether it's our business ventures or our family activities, whatever. Friends, your kingdom is not better than his. And if you hold on to your kingdom until the end, you will lose. So Christian, we must know where our loyalty lies. Are we to be good citizens of the United States? Absolutely. But when the U.S. says to do one thing and it goes against God's word, where does our loyalty lie? It must lie with our risen king. And do not fool yourself. The winds of cultural change have come. Most Americans do not trust in the gospel. Most Americans are not following Jesus. They may culturally be Christians, right? 
But let's be honest about how many people on my Instagram and Facebook feeds say they're Christians, but their pictures and their words prove they're not. You must know where your loyalty lies. I don't know if the day is is coming tomorrow or a hundred years from now or, Lord willing, a thousand years from now when it will be too hard to be a Christian in the United States because of persecution. But friends, the cultural winds make it look like it's coming soon. Prepare yourselves and know where your loyalty lies. Church, we must serve as an embassy. We must see ourselves as a, as a, 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 a an organization that is committed to our king first, but who wants to be for the good of the nation that we're in. Just like there are, there are embassies all throughout our country from other countries, their first loyalty lies to the country they've come from, but they want to play a good, positive role in the United States. That's what the church should do. We want to be good citizens. We want to love Love our our leaders well, love our nation well, but our first allegiance is to Jesus. And friends, in the public square, we must be heavenly-minded citizens. We should vote. We should be active in um, the culture and, and active in politics, but we do it with our minds on heaven. Knowing that God is the one who shapes our ethics, not our political party. And we must know that there is only one Messiah, there is only one Savior, and his name is Jesus. Don't think that if Hatch would just have a different mayor, or New Mexico would just have a different governor, or the U.S. would just have a different president, that all of our dreams would come true. There's only one Messiah. And we need to stop making others take on that role. So we come to verse 23. This is how God finishes this book through his prophet. On that day, so thinking to the day of the Lord, thinking to the return of Jesus, on that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you declares the Lord of hosts. I love that this sentence is surrounded by declares the Lord of hosts. Right? One more time, because we're about to leave this book. But remember, Lord of hosts is not that God is some sort of hospitable person who throws nice dinner parties. The Lord of hosts has with it the idea that he is the God of the universe. He hung the stars. He placed the moon and the sun where it is. He placed our planet perfectly where life could exist and where he could put his image bearers on this place. And not only is he the God of the universe, but he's also the God of angel armies. There are thousands, if not millions, of these angelic beings who at his beck and call will do whatever he calls for. This is the God who declares to Zerubbabel and to the returned exiles what he is about to say. And then at the end of the sentence, it says he declared it just so they know. Yes, he's the one who said it. Oh yeah, by the way, he's the one who said it. Do not forget, right? In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, if something is repeated, it's repeated for emphasis. 
It is for you to know that it's important. And it is important for you to know that God spoke these words. He says, on that day, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel. There's two things that we must know about Zerubbabel. The first one is, he is an obedient servant to his master. He trusts the Lord and he obeys him. This is the call on all of us. You trust God and you obey him. Now, you can't do it perfectly. That's why we need grace. In the beginning of of your relationship with God, you didn't want to do it. That's why you need the Holy Spirit to draw you to repentance and faith. But your call, believer, is to trust God and obey him. But the second reason that my servant and the son of Shealtiel is important is because Zerubbabel's history matters. That he was born in the line of David matters. And this is not because we are who our ancestors are. Many of the men who came before Zerubbabel were terrible. The reason Judah was overtaken by the Babylonians, the reason the temple and the capital and the walls were destroyed was God's judgment on them because they had wicked kings. The great-grandfathers of Zerubbabel, many of them were evil. They did not love the Lord. They ran after idolatry and sin. And God brought his judgment on his people. But it matters that Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel. Because it is the line of David where the Messiah king will come. The great king that Zerubbabel and the returned exiles longed for. And maybe some of them thought Zerubbabel was it. But God's talking about Jesus here. God says that he will take Zerubbabel and make him like a signet ring. Now, I want to argue that Zerubbabel is not the Messiah. He is not the one who becomes the signet ring. God is speaking to him, not as this will happen to you, but this will happen to someone who comes from you. And the reason we think that is because the heavens and the earth didn't shake when Zerubbabel was made the governor of Judah. This kingdom that is promised did not come through Zerubbabel. They still belong to Persia. And after Persia, they'll belong to the Greeks. And after the Greeks, they'll belong to the Romans. And then they will be spread out because of the Romans. And they will live across Europe and Africa. Eventually, they'll be kicked out of northern Africa because of the rise of Islam. And of course, the Christians in Europe don't treat them much better. But Israel is not the final kingdom. Zerubbabel is not the Messiah. God says he will be like a signet ring. A signet ring is is a ring or a band or a necklace that contains the family crest or the family coat of arms that is of a king and it's used to identify either an ambassador that is coming to, to speak on behalf of the king or to prove that a letter is from the king, right? Because you would take uh, the, the signet ring, you would put it in wax and then you would stamp it on the envelope to show that this came from the king. 
And so when God says that Zerubbabel will be like a signet ring, he has in mind two places in the Old Testament. Now, the, the signet ring, uh, a signet ring is mentioned multiple times in the Old Testament, but there are two specific ones that help us understand what he's talking about here. The first one is Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6, where the wife, if, if you don't know what the Song of Solomon is, it is a poem that, that rejoices in marriage. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the, the joy of sex within marriage, all right? And in Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6, the wife talks about her husband as being a signet ring that is stamped like a, a, a band on her arm and on her heart. This is to help us understand that this signet ring is meant to be an image. Or like Paul says in Colossians 1 that we read early this morning, he is the image of what? The invisible God. And then in Jeremiah 22, 24, as Jeremiah is talking about the destruction that is coming to Jerusalem and the anger that God has for his people, he talks about Jehoiakim, who was the last king of Judah. And he says, Jehoiakim is like a signet ring to me, and I am so angry at him that I'm not going to take the ring off, but I'm actually going to rip my finger off. And the reason he says that is to help the people of Judah understand that God is so angry at them that his justice and his wrath are being poured out on them, that it is painful to him because they are his people. They are the ones that he saved. But they have rebelled and rebelled and rebelled and Jehoiakim has been one of the worst. And so he's done with them. Of course, we know he's not done with them. Jeremiah reminds them again and again he's not done with them because there was a remnant of people that would return. And, and Haggai is preaching to the remnant of people that has returned. And so why make a big deal about this signet ring? Well, the coming king that will be the signet ring is better than Jehoiakim. But he's also better than Zerubbabel, who was a good man. And he's certainly better than David, who was the greatest king that Israel had ever known. This king is the signet ring. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the God-man. He is Jesus Christ. And not only does God say in chapter 23 that, that Zerubbabel will be like a signet ring, but then he says, for I have chosen you. And we cannot forget that the word Messiah in Hebrew means chosen one. The Greek word that's a translation of Messiah, Christ, means the chosen one. Remember, friends, Christ was not Jesus' last name. It was his title. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the chosen one. Listen to me, friends. Zerubbabel, Josiah, Hezekiah, David, any of the good kings you want to remember and bring up, they were good and they were chosen kings, but they were nothing compared to Jesus. He is the better king because he is sinless. He is just. He is gracious. He is loving. He is sacrificial. He was the one who created the world. He is the one who has sustained the world. He is the king that they longed for and we long for. He is the king who took the cross 
and died in our place. There is no other king of Israel who died for their people like Jesus did. There is no other king in the world who died for his people like Jesus did. Because Jesus didn't just die. He came back to life to sit at the right hand of the Father, to intercede on our behalf, and to rule for eternity. So friends, we wait for the return of the King. We wait for the return of the King. This is hard for us where we stand right now. To be in the church, to be in a nation that promises freedom, and to be waiting for this king who offers us eternity without sin, without pain, without brokenness, and being in the presence of him, which is our greatest joy. We struggle. And so we hope and we dream and we long for and we remind each other that he's coming. And it could be tomorrow. It may not be, but it could be. And so we pray like John did at the end of Revelation. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We know what it means to have hope. We know what it means to place our hope in someone. When I was a young man, I grew up in a town that had two little leagues, but only one senior league, okay? So you would, you know, you had your Eastern Little League and your Western Little League, and then you all came together in junior high, right, ages 13 through 15, uh, to, to play in one league together. And so as a 13-year-old, uh, I tried out for the senior league, and, and, and I was put on this team called Bank One, and they, they didn't have cool nicknames for us. They just named us after whoever the sponsor was. So I played for Bank One, right? Um, but anyways, um, Bank One was probably the worst team up there in that league. And all of my friends made sure to let me know, you got drafted by the worst team. It's going to be terrible. You guys, well, of course, they didn't talk like that. We were junior high boys. We thought we had to use words we shouldn't use to sound older and cooler and more mature. But of course, we know, you know, the more cuss words someone says, the less mature they sound. But anyways, um, now, at the tryout for this draft... It was all 13-year-olds, and there was one 15-year-old, a guy named Josh, who hadn't played baseball in this league up until now. And I was aware of Josh because I played football and basketball, and I had seen him play football and basketball. Josh was, as a 15-year-old, six foot four, about 240 pounds. He looked like a man as a 15-year-old. And I'd seen him crush people on the football field, and I had seen him push people around on the basketball court, and so I thought, he's going to be awesome at baseball. So every time they would make fun of my team, I would say, yeah, but we got Josh, so we're going to be okay. And of course, there's a reason Josh hadn't played baseball for two years. He was incredibly powerful, but he wasn't a very good baseball player. So he hit like 15 home runs that year, but I bet he probably struck out about 50 or 60 times. My hope in Josh was misplaced. And we've all put misplaced hope on somebody, right? Friends, 
hoping in the return of Jesus is not misplaced. He is not going to let you down. He is going to come and rule with grace and mercy and love, but he only rules over those with grace, mercy, and love, those who have repented and believed in him. He is coming back. He's coming back with justice and with grace. We can, we can rest assured in that. And so those of you that are sitting on the fence, I just want to give you one more plea. You can be judged or welcomed by Jesus. It matters what you do with him now. So don't act like you're going to live a life and not meet him again. You will repent and believe. Christian, I want to plead with you to live and pray with the return of Jesus in mind. Let his return drive you to obedience. Let his return drive you to joy. And let his return shape your prayers. There are immediate things that need prayed for. I'm not telling you to not pray for those. But friends, pray with 10,000 years in mind. Pray with eternity in mind. Pray knowing that he is coming back. That is me. I apologize. My insulin pump is going crazy. I was wondering who that beeping was coming from. I'm sorry. Um, We need to pray focused on Jesus. Knowing that he is coming back. Church, we need to learn to rejoice in his second coming just like we rejoice in the cross and the resurrection. The idea of his second coming needs to be a source of joy for us. And when we lift up our hands to think about his sacrifice on the cross, and when we rejoice in our hearts at the thought of the resurrection, let the second coming be as much of a joy. And finally, friends, in the public square, we must live from future victory. We must live from future victory. And so that means when we have success in business or politics or, I don't know, your softball team, right? Don't get too high about that. And when you lose in business and politics and on the softball team, don't get too low. If you are in Christ, your future is secure. Rest in that and rejoice in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your mercy your grace, and your love. We thank you for the work that Jesus has done on the cross. Uh, Father, we, we thank you for this, this truth that um, our, our victory has been won by Jesus. And so, God, I, I pray that we would, we would rest and rejoice in our future victory, that we would know that Jesus is coming back, and that we have a sure foundation and a sure hope in him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.